0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Um, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second?
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 24th. Today, the Mueller hearing. What the special prosecutor said and what it could mean for President Trump. Plus, protests in Puerto Rico. Oh my god. (laughs) Oh my god. There's so many people here. So right now it is 12.08 PM. We are standing in the hallway of the Rayburn office building on Capitol Hill, outside the House Judiciary Committee room, waiting for Congress reporter Rachel Bade, who is right now watching members of Congress grill Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller over the conclusions of the Russia investigation. Ten minutes later, people started spilling out of the hearing room. Oh, is Rachel over there? <laughs> Finally, we found Rachel. All right. hey. And a quiet place to talk. I'm wondering if you can just,
2: like, set the scene of what it was like in there and what was actually happening. Yeah, so there was a lot of uh, anticipation coming into this hearing. This is a hearing that... Democrats have talked about holding now for three or four months, ever since the report came out. They wanted to do it sooner, but were not able to because Mueller has been this very reluctant uh, prosecutor who he did not want to talk uh, publicly and be used as sort of this political football.
3: The Judiciary Committee will come to order. Without objection, the chair is authorized to declare recess. So
2: the hearing started off with the House Judiciary Committee, uh, which is the panel that has impeachment jurisdiction uh, over the president.
3: We will do this work... Because there must be accountability for the conduct described in your report, especially as it relates to the president.
2: And you had Republicans and Democrats on this panel basically rotating back and forth, trying to get Mueller to say something that would, of course, help them politically. You had Democrats go through various episodes of potential obstruction of justice and ask Mueller to confirm whether the details they were reading from the report were correct or not. He gave a lot of short one-word answer saying correct or yes, uh, didn't elaborate much. And then you had Republicans try to get him to talk about how he didn't charge the president with anything.
3: Director Mueller, you may begin. Good morning, Good morning.
4: Chairman Nadler the, uh, and Ranking Member Collins and the members of the committee. As you know, in May 2017, the Acting Attorney General asked me to serve as special counsel. I undertook that role because I believed that it was of paramount interest to the nation to determine whether a foreign adversary had interfered in the presidential election.
2: So one of the top things Democrats wanted to do in this hearing was they wanted to get Mueller to refute what Trump says over and over again, which is no collusion, no obstruction. And they went for that goal right away. The
3: president has repeatedly claimed that your report found there was no obstruction And that it completely and totally exonerated him.
2: Immediately, in the first Q&A with Mueller, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, who's a Democrat from New York, that was his first question for Mueller.
3: So the report did not conclude that he did not commit obstruction of justice. Is that correct? That is correct. And what about total exoneration? Did you actually totally exonerate the president? No. No.
0: So your point about the fact that a lot of Robert Mueller's answers were one word answers or I refer you to the report.
4: I uh, leave the answer to the uh, our report. I'll leave it with the uh, report. Direct you to the I report. I would have to refer you to the report. I, I direct you to the uh, report for how that is characterized. I, re- I rely on the language of the report. And I would direct you to the report itself. Uh, I refer you to the uh, report for that.
0: It did seem like that kind of hampered the extent of the effectiveness of some of these questions because at a lot of points Robert Mueller either seemed like he didn't really want to give an elaborate answer or was kind of confused by the question and was often asking people to repeat their questions and it didn't it it felt like there wasn't like a oh they nailed
2: it moment for the Democrats. That's exactly right. Democrats basically went into this hearing saying that they need to have this made-for-TV moment. They thought if they had this hearing, they would be able to sort of show Americans exactly what was in the report, given that only 3% of Americans, they say, have actually read it. And so what they wanted Mueller to do was come in and actually describe in his own words— these various episodes of obstruction that he had laid out in his report. But the problem was he didn't want to do that. And so what ended up happening was that Democrats would actually just read some of these details and he would confirm yes or no. You just mentioned he seemed confused. That seemed to be a theme we saw throughout. Mueller often asked lawmakers to repeat their questions. Sometimes he seemed confused. Um, there was a point at one point, Time where he couldn't remember which president had uh, named him to become a federal prosecutor. Uh, he said Bush when actually it was Reagan. Mm. And so that sort of theme of Mueller being confused um, and sort of giving these very short answers was something we saw throughout. And I do think it Democrats expected it a little bit, but not quite to that extent. They had gone into this hearing trying to sort of downplay expectations even though they were hoping he would get into some details. But I don't think they downplayed their expectations quite enough because he really did not do anything close to what they had said they wanted him to do.
0: Well, we saw that in that moment when Representative Ted Lieu was asking Mueller about the decision to not indict the president.
3: And I'd like to ask you the reason, again, that you did not
4: indict Donald Trump is because of OLC opinion stating that you cannot indict a sitting president, correct? Uh, That is correct.
2: So in the Mueller report, one of the big findings or big takeaways was that Mueller's team didn't decide whether or not the president had obstructed justice because they felt uh, they didn't have a place to do that, that it had to be another branch of government that made that decision. And that's where a lot of people said, oh, he's pointing to Congress to talk about impeachment or proceed with impeachment proceedings. But what Mueller did in this Lou Q&A session was Lou sort of put him on the spot and said, oh, you didn't indict the president because the Justice Department rules prohibit a president from being indicted, which is true. They do. Um, and he said yes, suggesting that he would have indicted the president if he was any other average Joe person. And that was a key thing Democrats were actually trying to do. You know, Democrats had hoped people would walk away from this hearing knowing more about all these different potential obstruction episodes and sort of have this case to argue to the American people that if he wasn't a president, he would be indicted right now. But I think everybody in the hallways right now is talking about this confusion. How did Republicans navigate this?
0: And what strategy were they executing as they were questioning Mueller?
2: So Republicans did a couple of things. Of course, they tried to highlight that... um, Trump was not charged with anything.
4: The burden of proof for accusations that remain unproven is extremely high, and especially in light of the special counsel's thoroughness.
2: That ultimately, uh, Mueller's team didn't bring anything against the president. Um, but they also did something else. They tried to pin Mueller down on exactly when he decided he couldn't charge the president with any crimes. And the reason they did that was because... If he knew he wasn't going to charge the president with anything or that he felt he didn't have the authority to do that, they said he should not have even continued investigating or put out this 448-page report. There was a moment where John Radcliffe, who is a former federal prosecutor himself, I believe, a Republican from Texas, was saying, this is not—this is the exactly the opposite of what prosecutors are supposed to do. You're not supposed to lay out all this evidence against someone and then say, oh— we're not going to charge them with the crime. Can you give
3: me an example other than Donald Trump where the Justice Department determined that an investigated person was not exonerated because their innocence was not conclusively determined?
2: But Mueller's response was like, this was a different scenario. Um, You know, this is the president of the United States, and he had to do this sort of thorough investigation. Of course, he didn't say it in that many words.
0: So considering how this hearing turned out, how do you think that will affect Talk of potentially impeaching the president.
2: I don't think we're going to see nearly the new wave of members joining the impeachment push as we sort of anticipated. Reporters just yesterday night were sort of uh, chatting in the speaker's lobby during votes. How many members do you think join this impeachment push tomorrow? And, you know, some people were saying 20, 25, 30. Well, I don't know that we're going to see that. I think that this didn't have the effect that Democrats wanted it to have. Um, And I would be surprised if we even see, you know, 10 by the end of today. That doesn't mean the impeachment push is dead or it's probably just stalled for now. But
0: the idea that someone's going to hold up the Mueller testimony and say, this is proof that we need to impeach the president now, that might not happen.
2: Absolutely not. Not going to happen today.
0: Roz Helderman, investigative reporter for the political staff, what is happening this afternoon in this
1: day of Mueller testimony? So this morning, we heard from Bob Mueller in front of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, They were looking at volume two of the reports, kind of a little bit of a backwards day. That's the day that looked at Donald Trump's actions once he was elected president and considered the question of whether he committed obstruction of justice. This afternoon, we've gone back in time and we're looking at volume one, the section of the report that deals with uh, the Russian effort to interfere in the election, which the report said was sweeping and systematic and then deals with the questions of contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russian government or other Russians and found that there uh, was not enough evidence, insufficient evidence, to establish a criminal conspiracy between Russia and the Trump campaign.
0: But what was interesting is that at the beginning of this second hearing, Robert Mueller actually went back to correct something that he'd said from the first hearing.
4: I want to go back to one thing that was said this morning by Mr. Liu, who said, and I quote, you didn't charge the president because of the OLC opinion.
1: Yeah, there was this moment in the first hearing where he was answering questions from Ted Lieu, the congressman from California, and he seemed to say that if not for the Office of Legal Counsel opinion that a president can't be indicted, that that's the reason that Donald Trump has not been indicted, which is something that Democrats very, very much wanted him to say. But it's actually not what the report says. What the report says is that they made this decision not to come to a decision as to whether or not to indict the president. And they made that decision in part because of these OLC memos. It's a subtle difference, but a very important one. So he came back to say, essentially, that he didn't really answer that question the way he intended to, and once again, referred people to the report and the way they analyzed this question in the 450-page report.
4: That is not the correct way to say it. As we say in the report, and as I said at the opening, we did not reach a determination as to whether the president committed a crime. And with that, Mr. Chairman, ready to answer questions.
0: So what Democrats thought was a small win from that first hearing was not actually a win.
1: That's right. He came back and said, never mind. So what have we seen that's new from the second hearing? Well, Bob Mueller does seem to be somewhat more loquacious. Uh, He's not a loquacious guy, so he's not offering long answers. But he is appearing to answer a little bit more than merely yes and merely no. And there was one very important moment that I think will get a lot of coverage where he offered one, maybe his only one so far, quite pointed criticism of Donald Trump and comments that Donald Trump made during the campaign about WikiLeaks, the organization that had released these hacked emails, he said that he agreed with comments from Donald Trump's then CIA director, Mike Pompeo, that WikiLeaks is essentially a hostile intelligence service. And he said of those comments by Donald Trump, he said, problematic is an understatement.
3: This WikiLeaks is like a treasure trove. Donald Trump, October 31st, 2016. Boy, I love reading those WikiLeaks. Donald Trump, November 4th, 2016. Would any of those quotes disturb you, Mr. Director?
4: I'm not certain, I would say. Uh, How do you react to that? Well, it's probably problematic, is an understatement, in terms of what it displays, in terms of uh, uh, giving some, uh, I don't know, hope or some boost to what is and should be illegal activity.
1: So that's really taking on the president in a, in a rather direct way and in a way that Bob Moore certainly was not interested in doing in the morning. He also offered a, a bit more defense of his own investigation. He at one point bluntly said, this is not a witch hunt, also contradicting the president, who, of course, over and over again has called Bob Moore's efforts a witch hunt.
4: Well, your investigation is not a witch hunt, is it? It is American not a office? witch hunt. When the president said the Russian interference was a hoax, that was false, wasn't it? True. When he said it publicly, it was false? Uh, He he did uh, say publicly that it was false, yes. And when he told it to Putin, that was false too, wasn't it? That I'm not familiar with.
0: So it seems like one of the takeaways from today was that lawmakers who came in trying to get Robert Mueller to to say something new or to go further than what was actually in the report, that they pretty much failed at that. But in terms of getting him to reiterate some of the big conclusions from the report, especially having to do with Russia and Russian interference, that those were the moments where Robert Mueller was able to kind of make a more forceful
4: point.
3: Um, in your investigation, did you think that this was a single attempt by the Russians to get involved in our election, or did you find evidence to suggest they'll try to do this again?
4: Oh, It wasn't a single attempt. They're doing it as we sit here, and they expect to do it. Uh, 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 during the the next campaign.
1: I don't think that he was interested in, as you say, giving anything new. And I also don't think he was particularly interested in sort of participating in the Democratic effort to kind of provide a cinematic rereading of the report. But I do think he wants people to know what is in the report. You saw an adjustment from... Uh, Robert Mueller in in midday, where he kind of understood that merely saying yes and no to everything the Democrats said um, wasn't educating people on, uh, on what was in the report. And if he wanted people to understand the contents of the report, he needed to give just a bit more. Have we heard the president's response at all to this hearing? Sure. I mean, the president was tweeting before it began, and he's been tweeting as it goes on. We also got sort of the official White House position from Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham, who um, gave White House reporters a statement this afternoon. She says, the last three hours have been an epic embarrassment for the Democrats. Expect more of the same in the second half. So you can kind of see where this is going. The White House position is going to be this was a downright embarrassment for Democrats.
0: So where do we go from
1: here? And will we ever hear from Robert Mueller again? So it it may be that we hear from Bob Mueller never or only rarely again after this. But what he's left behind for us is the report. It's long and detailed and the results of everything his team did for two years, the capstone of his career. He said it to us that it is the living message of his work for us, and that's what he will leave behind.
4: Uh, We spent substantial time assuring the integrity of the report, understanding that it would be our living message to those who, uh, who come after us. But it also is a signal, a flag to those of us who have some responsibility in this area to exercise those responsibilities swiftly and don't let this problem continue to linger as it has over so many years.
0: Roz Helderman is a political investigative reporter for The Post. Rachel Bade covers Congress. If you want to read the Mueller report in its entirety, The Washington Post has published a book, in hardcover and in paperback, with the full text of the redacted report, along with an introduction and analysis from Roz and our colleague Matt Zapatoski. You can buy it online or at your local bookstore. Protesters have been marching in the capital of Puerto Rico for nearly two weeks.
5: There have been day after day, night after night, protests taking place all across the island, but sort of primarily focused on San Juan and Viejo San Juan, which is Old San Juan.
0: Irelise Hernandez is a national correspondent for The Post, and she's been reporting from Puerto Rico.
5: I got here, oh god, Tuesday night, last Tuesday. <laughs> Folks are bringing pots to bang on. They're bringing these handheld drums called panderetas. And they're gathering together and basically singing chants and denouncing the governor of Puerto Rico, calling on him to resign.
0: These protests began after the leak of controversial text messages.
5: Well, a series of chats, group messages that he had shared between him and 11 other men who were both cabinet members and friends of him, in which we got an idea of the way that his government thinks about the people of Puerto Rico. There were denigrating comments about women, about gay people, about his political opponents, including San Juan's mayor, Carmen Yulín Cruz. And what was most devastating, I think, for people here, when you asked them, was a joke that he made about cadavers piling up in the morgues after Hurricane Maria. It'd be hard to find a person in Puerto Rico who wasn't even directly or indirectly affected by the death of someone because of the prolonged power outage and shortages on food, gasoline, and medicine that occurred in the weeks after the hurricane.
0: So part of this protest is about these texts that the governor has participated in that were obviously offensive to a lot of people. But are there larger concerns that people have about the way that Puerto Rico is run?
5: Oh, absolutely. This is sort of an accumulated outrage. The chats were sort of the spark that made the piece of dynamite explode. But if we were going to keep going with that metaphor, the fuse was lit a long time ago. For 12, 13 years now, Puerto Rico has been in a recession. And during that time, the government has accumulated quite a bit of debt, an estimated $74 billion. As part of that, uh, the U.S. Congress under President Obama passed a law imposing an unelected federal oversight board, which would have control over Puerto Rico's finances. That particular move reeked of colonialism to people here, particularly young people and people who advocated for more autonomy for Puerto Rico. Keep in mind that Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory it belongs to, but is not a part of the United States, according to the Supreme Court. And so Puerto Rico has self-government, but it can't vote for the president. We have a representative in Congress, but they cannot vote on anything that happens in Congress. And so it's sort of a limbo status that Puerto Rico is in right now. Some political parties want statehood, others want independence, others want something else. right? And this sort of continuing debate in Puerto Rico, along with all the consequences that come with an economic recession, like limited opportunities, people losing their jobs, sort of all came to a head. And then Hurricane Maria came. The Category 4 storm was particularly devastating for Puerto Rico because of the fact that, you know, investments had not been made in the infrastructure of the island for many, many years Um, it completely wiped out the the power grid here. It completely wiped out telecommunications here. For days, people couldn't get in touch with their loved ones because of the damage that the storm had wreaked. And as we know now, an estimated 3,000 people, according to a George Washington University study, died as a result of that. People couldn't drive around. They couldn't get their medicines. People couldn't get dialysis, couldn't, you know, Get to the hospital. All kinds of things happened that now protesters sort of laying at the feet of the Roselló administration and asking the question, you know, why did this happen? Then came the chats. (laughs) The chats sort of laid all that to bear
0: so the overarching sense from these protesters is that they believe that governor roseo has basically mishandled the government hasn't been a force for the autonomy of puerto rico and that both when it comes to dealing with this with this economic crisis and also with all of the infrastructural failures that led to the catastrophe that was the aftermath of hurricane maria that much of that has to do with the governor and how he's run things
5: the governor and the political system, right? Like this is more about more than chats for for people in Puerto Rico, and while they're laying this down at the feet of Rosell. This is something they blame their political system for. And also, let's be clear, Rosselló is a statehooder. He wants statehood and promised statehood as part of his uh, campaign for governor back in 2016. But the way that politics are structured in Puerto Rico, where you have sort of this cycle of administrations switching between the statehood and the uh, popular Democratic Party, each one has had sort of their series of corruption scandals and issues with graft. And so people are just are tired of that. And particularly young people here in Puerto Rico who's had to live through a lot of that and then live through Hurricane Maria and were you know traumatized by that particular experience.
0: What are the chances that these protests will actually result in some kind of change? Like, is there any possibility that Roseo might step down and on a greater level, like, are these protests even being taken seriously on an international stage?
5: Rosello now, I think we're on three or four times, has come out and said publicly that he will not step down. He's talked about reconciliation. He's talked about forgiveness. But not once has he entertained the idea of resigning his post. Now, that doesn't mean that the legislature here in Puerto Rico can't initiate an impeachment process in response to what protesters on the streets are demanding. I'm not sure how this is being perceived around the world. I know that Puerto Rico has a massive diaspora, including myself. I'm of Puerto Rican heritage. My parents came to the United States and I grew up in metropolitan Washington. And so there have been demonstrations all across the world, in Madrid, in Barcelona, in Argentina, and a bunch of other places where Puerto Ricans have settled that are also capturing attention in those communities. Meanwhile, protesters are saying they're not stopping, that not, they're not going to end their demonstrations by any means until Rosselló leaves office. It remains to be seen whether this will place any additional pressure on lawmakers here in Puerto Rico or on Rosselló himself to acquiesce to the demands of these protesters.
0: Arlise, thank you so much. Thank you. Aurelise Hernandez is a national correspondent for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Go to postreports.com to catch up on recent episodes and to sign up for our afternoon emails, which will give you a heads up when each day's show is posted. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
2: It's Lillian Cunningham, host of The Washington Post's presidential and constitutional podcasts. Come with me on my next podcast journey, Moonrise. Moonrise reexamines the story you thought you knew about why we went to the moon. I dig into newly declassified documents and presidential records, closed-door political deals, the Cold War nuclear arms race, and even the history of science fiction, to tell a new story about space. It's one that's darker, but also truer than the story you've probably heard before. And it has a lot to tell us about ourselves as Americans and as humans. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise.